At the tail end of 2018, the search for a little boy led to the recovery of a skeletonized victim. Three years later, she was returned to her family just 12 miles away. This is the case of the Evangeline Parish Jane Doe, 2018. Hello and welcome back to The Ties That Find. I am your host, Rachel, and it is so great to see you again. And it is so great to say hello to the newbies. Thank you so much for checking the show out and for sticking with us here. I really appreciate all the listens, the likes, the shares, and we do have a new review. And it was a five-star, yes. Thank you so much. Thank you to Blue Jay Legs. (laughs) I love that. Uh, Blue Jay Legs says, If you're interested in forensic genealogy, this is for you. Thank you so much for the shout on Apple Podcasts. I really appreciate it. This is my birthday episode. I am turning 44. My God, so much life behind me, but hopefully so much life in front of me. And wouldn't you know it, there is a DNA Doe Project fund available for John Doe that had passed on this day, September 14th, 1977. I'm just going to read off from the DNA Doe Project website, the little information that we do know about him. Quote, on September 14th, 1977, during the early morning hours, a Waukesha County Sheriff's Department deputy was pursuing a vehicle for speeding when the driver ran a stop sign, lost control, and left the highway and crashed. The driver was killed when he was ejected from the vehicle and he was the sole occupant. The incident occurred seven and a half miles east of Delafield, Wisconsin. Investigators discovered the vehicle had been stolen from Gurney, Illinois. During autopsy, the forensic pathologist determined the deceased was a white Caucasian male, 20 to 30 years old, 6 feet tall, 155 pounds, with brown hair, cut military style. Items found in the vehicle contained the name John. Investigators were able to eliminate the vehicle's owner, but could not determine if the name was actually the decedent's name, an alias, or something unrelated to him, unquote. So it was a pretty easy pick to pick him. I hope he's not a bad guy. Maybe he was racing down the highway trying to get away from a bad guy or girl. Um, but yeah, I got to know. And seeing as how we're doing a donation for my birthday, it's just right there in front of us. So how can we say no? So hopefully we'll get some movement on him. And of course, I will let you know in the future. So moving on to today's case, this is going to be our first African-American female doe case, and I am happy to be able to bring it to you. I did rely heavily on her Facebook page to learn about her, and she was a beautiful person. Her page has remained untouched since the day she went missing. And with that, let's get into it. Okay, so we are in Evangeline Parish in Louisiana, and I said, what the hell is a parish? So I found on Wikipedia that, quote, do we quote Wikipedia? I don't know. The U.S. state of Louisiana is divided into 64 parishes in the same manner that Alaska is divided into boroughs and the other 48 states are divided into counties. So there you go. Within Evangeline Parish is the city, and I use that word very loosely, of Ville Platte. I tried to find it on YouTube to see if I'm saying it right, but it's V-I-L-L-E-P-L-A-T-T-E. 
thinking those E's are silent, so we're going to say Ville Platte. Um, it does cover about four square miles, and it's home to only 7,000 people. So uh, town, it's a city in for the area, I suppose. It is considered a city. And being so close to Louisiana's Cajun country, Ville Platte is, quote, famous for its smoked meat and swamp pop music. Now, I love me some smoked meat any day. And I looked up Swamp Pop, and it's actually very similar to Zydeco. And oh my God, if you've never heard it, it's amazing. The best part of my two trips to New Orleans to date have been the music hands down, even before I got drunk. My God, I've never danced so much to music that I didn't know until New Orleans. Check it out on YouTube. You're going to love it. And here we find ourselves at the end of 2018. Christmas is over and we're getting ready for a new year. This is going to be it only three years ago because we're now pushing the end of 2021. And nine-year-old Bryson Thibodeau goes missing. He's important. You'll see. On Friday afternoon, December 27th, according to his father, he and Bryson were home and mom was out of the house. Mom calls home, asks about Bryson, and then dad realizes that Bryson's not in the house after all. Dad thinks that his son went to let the family dogs in the house, but then maybe he took off himself. And this is going to be around 1230, 1 o'clock, and it's a Friday. Mom then calls the police to report her son missing, and she says that he's left the home before, multiple times in the past. He's got some behavioral issues, but he's not autistic. Um, But he's always been recovered right away. And later in the evening, a post is made about him running off in the town's Facebook group. And members decide that they're going to get together to begin a search. Locals meet up at the gas station right on the road where the family lives, and they start searching. And they go throughout the night and all through into Saturday and then into Saturday night. Now, at that point, the sheriff's department and the American Cajun Navy are involved in the search as well. And so they say, listen, we got to get the volunteers to stop. It's getting too cold out and it's dark out. It's not safe. We're going to get them to stop, but we're going to continue through the night. And by early morning on Sunday, Bryson was thankfully located. He was safe under a bed in the neighbor's home, which doesn't sound that safe to me, but he was safe and sound. I guess the neighbors decided that after like two days of searching for him, that they shouldn't tell law enforcement they have him. It is a little weird. When police recover him, though, it is apparent that he is very malnourished and he's sickly, and it turns out he did have a reason to run away from home. When police are interviewing mom and dad at their home while their son is missing, they notice that the house was in shambles. It was filthy and gross, and it was so bad that they knew that they were going to have to look into these parents for neglecting the kids, because Bryson has a sister as well. Police also interviewed the Thibodeau's other family and acquaintances, and then they soon realized that they had a full, a full-on abusive situation on their hands, and Bryson and his sister were eventually taken from the home. Within a week of Bryson's disappearance and return, his parents were charged with cruelty to juveniles, and we do hope that Bryson and his sister are in much better care and getting the love, care, and resources that they need. In the meantime... On the Saturday morning of the search for Bryson, volunteers are searching the area, and wouldn't you know it, we're back on a two-lane road. This is Louisiana Route 104 to be exact, and it's sandwiched between, or really among, two open fields with brush, maybe a tree or two here and there, you know the kind we've been here before. We're about 500 feet from the intersection where the gas station is around the corner where everybody met up, 
And there's this like big open barn shed building on one side of the road. There's all this junk in it. It's pretty much an abandoned building. We've seen them driving down country roads before. And I always want to stop and explore them, but I don't want to find anything like a body. But anyway, volunteers are looking through this one. And according to District Attorney Trent Brignick, quote, one of the volunteers was looking under a shed and picked up some type of basin and under the basin, what looked like a rock. And when they moved the rock, it rolled and he saw the eye sockets and the teeth and realized it wasn't a rock or an animal skull. Because law enforcement was in the area, they were able to verify it immediately, unquote. And verify meaning that it was a human skull, not an animal skull. And so now we have Evangeline Parrish, Jane Doe, 2018. So the police on the scene, who were there at first to help in the search for Bryson, now that Bryson's returned, they start scratching their heads. Of course, now that, now that he's safe and sound, they can redirect their efforts to finding out more about this mysterious skull. Forensics are able to recover most, if not all, of the remains, which are completely skeletonized at this point. Police also bring in cadaver dogs to see if there's maybe any other remains that they've missed, you know, in this huge, like, open barn area, just in case this is some kind of serial killer cemetery. But the dogs don't find anything else, so it's just this one Jane or John Doe that, they're, that they've got here. And they're going to bring in the LSU FACES. Mm. This is going to stand for Louisiana State University Forensic Anthropology and Computer Enhancement Services. Initial DNA testing at LSU FACES found the remains to be of a Cajun French African-American female. She could be 25 to 30 years old, and we are told that the body had been buried, or at least mostly buried while it was decomposed, so it's thought that the body could have been there for up to 10 years. And can I just tell you, when you look at the map, don't worry, I'm going to put on the socials, you're going to see that this outbuilding that she was in is right off the road. I'm going to put a street view picture of it on the socials so you can see how close it is to the concrete. It's also very close, like we said, to the intersection where you just turn right and hit the gas station. And then eventually you'll see some residential houses come and go, just like the Thibodeaux's. When you see the map, you're also going to see that there's a couple buildings right at that intersection. But they're also just empty buildings. They're not, they're not homes that are being inhabited at this time, at least in 2021 when I googled the street view. So police have no idea where this body came from. Um, of course, they're going to be searching local missing persons reports, and the list is short. They're looking for a Cajun or black woman who could have been up to 45 years old by now and who could have been missing for up to 10 years. None of these elements of any local missing people match up with this Jane Doe's demographics. Now, luckily or unluckily, as much as we hate to say luckily, um, the fact that this body was found or the skeleton was found in 2018 means that they really don't have to wait too long before they start thinking about the genetic genealogy route. And in May of 2019, which is just when the Jed match was shutting down the, that easy access law enforcement thing they had going, this is when the Louisiana State Police reaches out to the DNA Doe Project to ask for their help. The DDP accepts the case, and within a month or two, they had some of the remains at the lab. It wasn't going to be easy, though, because, like we said, she's been buried, exposed to the elements for a very long time, and they had to end up testing multiple samples to get a good enough DNA extraction to be able to use in the GenMatch system. 
So it wasn't going to be until November of 2019 that they had a good enough profile to be able to use from a tooth that was still in the skull of the remains. And we got to go back briefly to GenMatch and see what, and talk about what was going on with the database that year. By May of 2019, it had been a year since the Golden State Killer investigation produced a suspect, which we all now know is Joseph D'Angelo, and he was charged for his crimes. And a shit ton of people were running to GenMatch right after that to get themselves into the database to help future cases. The site's DNA profile uploads went from like 1,500 a day to 5,000 a day. And at the time, GenMatch was allowing law enforcement to get into the database now that, they're, that the, they know it's actually going to work. So there wasn't like a hard and true rule that the GenMatch creators had when it came to this type of investigation. And while the whole country was happy to see D'Angelo being held accountable for his crimes, there was also a lot of talk about the moral implications of using genealogy and genetics in criminal investigations, you know, because of privacy, right? Which is a totally a valid concern. I mean, we private citizens, those of us who do not find ourselves on trial for crimes that's going to get us into CODIS, we do have the right to, to our autonomy here. So in response to this public outcry, although maybe I think it was more like a whimper, in May of 2019, GenMatch decided to set all of its users' profiles to what they call opt-out concerning the access that law enforcement could have to their DNA data. All users were now going to have to log into their accounts, go to their settings, find the little radio button, and opt in if they wanted to be part of the pool that law enforcement will see when they submit either a suspect profile or the profile of a doe. And this, in my opinion, like I've said in the past in other episodes, is absolutely the right thing to do. You got to give the users their choice. If they want in, they have to do it themselves. But the consequence was that overnight, the database law enforcement was working with went from, let's say, Mufasa to Baby Simba. <laughs> and where was Rafiki? I'm going to say that Rafiki is going to be the media in this analogy. How many people didn't know about this change? I cannot tell you how many websites I've been active on for a while, right? I've crocheted, go to the crocheting website, paper crafts, MySpace, remember Yahoo Answers? And after a while, I'm like, meh, I'm moving on to something else. So how many times have you gotten an email that there's a policy changing at a website that you don't even really use anymore? And how likely are we to read it if we're not an active user at the time? And so how long is it going to take for GEDmatch users to find out that law enforcement is now being blocked for possible matches and then make the decision for themselves and finally see the database growing again. Because once a user does know that this happened, we have to think how many of them maybe didn't care enough about actually going back into that account to opt themselves in. Before the automatic opt-out, law enforcement using GenMatch had a pool of over 1.2 million profiles to work with. But even a year after the change in May of last year in 2020, the pool had not, the pool had only been built back up to about 260,000. So making family trees was that much harder to do now and take that much more time to complete. So when the DNA Doe project finally gets a good enough profile to work with to find out who Evangeline Parrish Jane Doe actually is, they have no idea if she's going to be a family member of a person that knows about GenMatch and are, and they're just sitting there waiting for a call, or if if they don't know, if her family members don't know, and then the match list is going to be something like three or third or fourth cousins. 
In the end, it's going to take about three months for Jane to get her name back, which is actually not too bad compared to other cases and the fact that she is a minority. And on February 5th, 2021, the Louisiana State Police announced that Evangeline Parrish, Jane Doe, 2018, had been identified as Erica Nicole Hunt. Okay, so I found no details about the actual family map, but there was one volunteer at the DDP that was assigned to this case, and it took her about 49 hours to zero in on Erica. And this was Jenny Leakis. And we know her and we love her. She also identified the Mill Creek Shed Man and the Barron County John Doe. So thank you, Jenny. You are an angel on earth. Jenny tells us, quote, being able to work on Erica's case and to help restore her identity to her was an absolute honor. She will never again be known as Evangeline Parrish Jane Doe. She is Erica Nicole Hunt. Unquote. So who was Erica? Erica was born on July 10th, 1995 to mother Shannon Isaac. Dad is not named or referred to in the media. Um, Erica had two sisters that she was very close to. She had, I believe it's Shantasia. Isaac, and then it looks like Arian Hunt. And let me tell you about Erica. I am in love with her. She had the most infectious smile. I will post a few pictures on the socials, of course. She had these dimples. There's just like something about dimples. I have them too, but they're not as pretty as hers. You look at her and she is happy. She is shining. She is glowing. She's with her daughter. She has a little girl. She's with family, chilling with friends. Erica is loving whatever she is doing at the moment that she's doing it. And you feel when you see her that you just want to jump right in and be there with her and have the kind of blast that she's having. Family tells us that she's outgoing, loving. Her sister described her as a firecracker of the family. Erica had three tattoos, which is my, another another reason she's my kind of girl. She had uh, her middle name, Nicole, on her back a Care Bear on her shoulder, and her daughter's name was on the outside of her wrist. So yes, Erica was a mother. She had a little girl who was just a toddler when she went missing. I believe she was like maybe two or three years old. And there's the cutest picture of her and her little one. And it's got this little caption that says mini me on it and like a bunch of little emo love emojis. And from her posts on her Facebook page, it really looks like she was still seeing her daughter's father up to the, like, at least Valentine's Day of 2016. Erica loved social media. Scrolling through her Facebook page, you can tell, like I said, she was in love with life and the people that she surrounded herself with. She had three things that she focused on. She posted selfies and videos hanging out with friends and family. Selfies with her and her daughter or comments about parenthood, because we all know what it's like to have a baby, and then a walker, and then a, a climber, and a kid that does not want to go to sleep, and a kid that's potty training. So it was really nice to see some of those posts, because I remember the days that I had when I had my little ones. Erica also had this running joke with family and friends. She would, she would, she's the kind of person that would take your phone from you, snap a selfie with it, and now you have a picture of her in your phone. <laughs> Sometimes they wouldn't even know it, and so they would just open their their photos at some point and say, oh, Erica had my phone, and she took a selfie. <laughs> I love it. So fun. 
So we see here that Erica was a loving and devoted mom to her little girl and an active member of her social circle. She was very well loved and cherished by the people in her life. And she knew it too. She knew that she was blessed. She was blessed both by the love that she received and the love that she gave. And here is a quote from Erica's Facebook page in January of 2016. Quote, people need to cherish every living person in their life for every second, minute, and hour, day, night, etc. Because the way things going now and these days, you never know when it's their turn or your turn. To all my family, we may not see eye to eye or see each other every day, but I promise you, there's no one to trade your place. I wouldn't ask for anyone different from any one of you. To you, I just want to say, I love you. Unquote. Love that. Six months later, Erica would go missing right before her 21st birthday. And this is in Opelousas, Louisiana, and it's 12 miles away from where she was recovered. So how could she have been only 12 miles away this whole time? How did she end up here? What was going on with Erica before she disappeared? And really, there was nothing. She was just living her best life from all accounts. So now we're going to go back in time to Erica's last few days with family and friends. We're going to go back to Independence Day weekend of 2016. On July 3rd of 16, Erica and her little girl attended a barbecue at her uncle's house for the holiday. This year, the 4th of July was going to be on a Monday, so everyone was celebrating the Saturday or Sunday right before. And her sister and other family members say that Erica was in a great mood. She was happy. She was social at the barbecue, as she always was. Her birthday was coming up next week on the 10th, and Erica was going to be 21. So Erica was talking about what she wanted to do for her birthday, which, no surprise, was to go to a club. Because turning 21 is a big deal for most of us, right? We're not staying in that night. Erica also had mentioned getting together the next day with another young mother that she knew. They were going to be taking the kids to the lake for some sunshine and fun. When the party started breaking up, Shannon told Erica she would keep her granddaughter for overnight. And then Erica would get her in the morning before going to the lake. But she never came to pick up her mini-me. The next day, Erica stopped by either her sister's or her aunt's house. It's not clear. Um, she hung out for a bit. She bummed some money for some smokes and then left. Police will be told that since she didn't have a car, whenever she came by, she usually would ask for a ride to like the next place she was going to go. But this time she didn't. So that was a little odd. And when she left, they weren't really sure if she left their house on foot or if she was picked up. That afternoon on the 4th of July was Erica's last Facebook post. It was around 1 p.m. just before 1 and she tagged a friend of hers to wish her a happy birthday, saying, Excuse our hotness, but screaming happy birthday from my bed where I can't seem to get out of to wherever she's located. Happy birthday, Kia Janae. Let's turn the F up. <laughs> Love it. She's got so much energy and so much lightness. But by July 5th, mom's not hearing from Erica. Sisters aren't hearing. No one's hearing from her. Her roommate says she realizes that she hasn't been home and mom still has a baby. So where is she? And why isn't she answering the phone? Because aside from Erica being a devoted mother and not the kind to just up and leave her kid, she was also in constant contact with her family and friends, like we said, like with social media or just texting and being in touch. She would even go as far as posting multiple times a day about her activities. 
And if her phone was ever dead and she didn't have a charger nearby to try to get in touch with a person on a phone call or a text, she would just use the phone of a friend that she was with to call mom if mom had her little girl. So not only was it odd that Erica didn't come to pick up her daughter, but by the time lunchtime had come and gone and then dinner time had come and gone, the family knew that something was terribly wrong. During the initial search for Erica, police got a tip that she had been seen at Billy Ray's Bowdoin, a local restaurant. And then there was another sighting a few blocks over from there on Madison Street. The police told the media that they weren't completely sure that these sightings were credible. So they, they got it, but they're not making they're not treating it like it's an ap- absolute fact. By mid-August, Erica's still missing, and the family creates a page dedicated to her on Facebook. Over time, people engage with the with the page. They're sharing it to get exposure to try to find her or at least find out where she went or what happened to her. There's also an article in the local newspaper where some of our information comes from here. Shannon speaks to the effects that Erica's disappearance is having on the family. She says, quote, it's kind of hard struggling with this every day. Everyone is lashing out in their own way. I don't want us to lash out to one another, unquote. And it's just another aspect of what happens when these terrible, terrible things happen. Something that we have to remember when we hear about a missing person. Everyone acts a different way. Everyone responds in their own way. We come up with ideas how to find the person. We want to go out. We want to search. Or do we want to stay and wait by the phone? We'll say things like the police aren't doing enough. And then the other person says they're doing their job. We'll say, oh, well, she's dead. I know it. And then the other person will say, don't say that. We don't know that. And then you have to go about your daily business. The baby needs lunch. Well, you need to do it because I'm going to post flyers. It's just heartbreaking. In the coming months, Erica's family and friends will post on Facebook about her disappearance, trying to spread the word, asking questions. Um, And then they're also standing on sidewalks with missing persons placards showing Erica's photo, basic information, and phone numbers to call if she was recognized. Unfortunately, nothing came of it. Then two years later, in 2018, police get a tip that Erica's remains are in, a, in Opelousas, her town, a house that she used to live in, but the ha- but not the house that she's living in when she went missing. In fact, it's actually vacant right now, and it's all boarded up. But they find the tip that's suspicious enough, and because it is near one of the areas that she was reported to be last seen before she disappeared, police search the home with cadaver dogs. Again, but the family's hopes are raised. And then the dogs don't find anything. There's no hits. And law enforcement finds nothing else in the house that could be connected to Erica. Interviewed by Dateline in the summer of 2020, Chief Martin McClellan is going to tell us that while there are no suspects in Erica's disappearance, authorities do believe that she has been harmed in some way or another. Her sister, Shantasia, tells us, quote, it's heartbreaking, but we haven't given up. And still four years later, signs like the ones that go up every year on election day when election day rolls around, like the ones people close to her were walking up and down the streets with just after she went missing, those signs are now on the front lawns throughout town, now four years later. And then come February of this year, Erica's finally identified as the Jane Doe that was found just a town over. And her family has some answers, even though that answers that she, that they don't want. Just a month after the public announcement was made on March 4th, Erica's family and the town of Opelousas held 
a candlelight vigil for her. Erica's Aunt Miranda Isaac speaks, saying, quote, We prayed and we asked God to bring her home, and now her remains are home. We can give her a proper burial, but now we need justice for Erica. At this time, there is no public speculation about how, why, or by who Erica was killed, but the Louisiana State Police Department is confident that they will find him or her eventually. But if that's the case, and we have no suspect DNA, do they think that this was someone that she knew? I don't know. Her brother-in-law said when she left the house that day that he seemed to have her own mode of transportation, or at least she didn't want him. She didn't need him to take her anywhere. Like maybe she didn't need him knowing where she was going or who she was seeing when she left. If this is the case, then who was it? So let's think about the facts of the case as we know it. Sunday is the night of the third. She is hanging out at the barbecue at her uncle's house with, with the rest of the family, and she decides to leave the baby there. We don't know where she went that night, if she went if she went straight back to her apartment, um, and she did have that roommate. We know the next day on Monday, she had posted that Facebook uh, message to her friend for her birthday around one o'clock in the afternoon. There was the visit to her aunt's house or sister's house to bump some smokes, and then she didn't need a ride when she left the house. And we don't know how far away this house is from her apartment. Um, we also don't know when exactly these sightings at the restaurant were or the if it was Madison Street. We don't know that. So we don't know what the time frame is. But it's very frustrating to not have this official timeline, especially when we know that this community that she lives in is predominantly African-American. So where was the media with all these details at the time? At some point on the 4th, she goes missing. We don't know if she cancels with her friend when it comes to that that kids that kids play date over at the lake. We don't know if she had talked to mom at all on the fifth. We also want to talk about the body site. She was half buried, or at least the weather perhaps was exhuming her over time. But the shed that she was found in it was very very close to the street, and that and the road and the part of the road that she was on was very very close to the intersection. So I could just imagine if I've got my windows rolled down and I'm coming up on coming up to the stop sign at this intersection, I'm going to make that right hand or that left hand turn because it is a T, then I'm probably going to smell something. Considering she went missing in the, in the beginning of July of 2016, something had to have been happening. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? There must have been some kind of decomp smell, not to be gross about it, but how come it wasn't discovered? I read an article somewhere, and now I can't remember where it was. I hope it's in the show notes. But there was a mention that the property owners, even though they didn't live there, they did have, they did socialize with girls that were vulnerable in society. I saw that mention. I didn't see it mentioned anywhere else in, in the reporting. So I, I don't want. I don't want to put that out there. That's why I didn't mention it. But do we think this is someone that she knew, and how would this person have any kind of relation to this property? And if she was finally identified this last February, and now we're into September, we're talking about seven months. I'm sure that that was the first thing the police thought of, the first thing the police have investigated. Maybe they don't have any evidence. Who knows what they're doing? Who knows what where the status of the case is at this point? But it is very frustrating. And hopefully we get some answers. And if they never come to any answers, then we just got to you know be happy that at least she, her remains were able to be returned to her family. 
If you have any information about Erica's murder and are finally ready to come forward, please submit a tip. It can be done anonymously online at the Louisiana State Police website. The quick version is go to lsp.org and then you're going to follow the link titled Suspicious Activity. I will put a link in the show notes to get you even there quicker. It's going to bring you right directly to that Suspicious Activity page and then you just fill out an online submission form. So do we think Erica would have been identified as the Evangeline Parish Jane Doe without forensic genealogy? I guess it could be possible. Um, I'm very curious what you guys think. It would have to be um, a lot of um, good luck things that are happening at the same time. Because most of the time when we have remains that are interred, it's a lot of work and a lot of red tape to decide for police departments and medical examiners to decide to exhume a body. There's got to be a very good reason. One, to see if they committed a crime, perhaps, or two, to identify the person. If they have a name they're working on to identify the person, then if it's only one name they're working on, and if they don't have enough evidence and they're not so sure that it could be that person, then maybe they won't exhume the remains. And that could have happened in Erica's case, I think, right? When we talk about exhuming the remains and and then submitting them for for forensic testing, you have the whole world that it could, you have the whole, you know, African-American female population that this person could be. But if you're going in it with the idea that you have one possible, possible person that it could be, then the the odds are a little going to be a little different from for whether or not you're going to solve that um, that Jane Doe case. So the question would be, what is the roadblock for Erica's family to even know that there was this Jane Doe that was found the next parish over, just a few miles away? Uh, once we get past that hurdle, and let's just say that they were able to find that there is an un, unaccounted for murder victim who is African-American and in their 20s. Remember, Erica was 20, but Evangeline Parish estimated her to be 25 to 35 years old. Then the family would have to go to the parish themselves and talk to the police department medical examiner, say, hey, it's possible that she could be ours. They also need to have something left behind of Erica's that had her DNA on it. And at the time when she went missing, she was with a roommate. And of course, we're totally sure that her items and her belongings were taken and, and, and have been kept safe by her, by her family. But how much of her DNA is, is going to be on that after all this time? I mean, I'm pretty sure the family isn't holding on to any of her you know, personal hygiene items. And then, um, well, we do have her daughter, though. So we, ha- we would have been able to uh, maybe compare her blood type. So as possible, if the family was able to convince Evangeline Parrish to exhume her, they could have used her daughter for that parent-child relationship. And at the same time, we're still going back to the genealogy front. So I do think it's possible, but I think they would have been, had to have been the right kind of people involved. We would have to have the family know that there was an unidentified body a few miles away. And then we would have to have people um, at the medical examiner's office or the police department saying, maybe we should exhume these remains and see if it is Erica. How long would that have taken if they didn't submit to the DNA Do project? I guess we'll never know. But we're glad that we were able to get it done now. Our closing tribute is going to reaffirm our desire to get justice for Erica. I hope we hear some news sooner than later. Her uncle Tyrone Glover says, quote, It was troubling. A lot of people wanted us to give up. A lot. They just thought that she went for a joyride and wasn't going to come back. 
Those rumors were just put aside whenever I spoke to Miranda. We just kept hope alive, and thank God. Thank God they found the remains, and now we can properly put her to rest the right way. The family can have some closure, but it isn't over. It isn't over because somebody did it. Unquote. And that is the case of Evangeline Parish Jane Doe, 2018. hope we get some answers soon. I hope they have a good lead and they are closing in. Today, we're not going to have an after story, a could we, can we, will we. Instead, I want to talk about the relationship between forensic genealogy and minority cold cases. Why are there so few minority cold cases being solved this way? There are many factors and it comes in two ways. We have to look at the two steps the forensic genealogy needs in order to work. Law enforcement action and the size of the database. First, law enforcement needs to pick a minority case and then choose to work it through genealogy. So why don't they do this too often? There's a number of reasons. White girl syndrome, obviously that's number one. It leads to lower pressure to solve cold cases that involve blacks or other minorities. If the public only hears about pretty white women's cold cases, then these are the cases that the police are going to try to solve. Number two, minorities namely African-Americans, we know they are distrustful of law enforcement. So if black families don't trust law enforcement to find their missing loved one or solve their family member's murder, they're not going to work as closely with them. Having an adversarial relationship with the police department will then affect the priority level of that particular cold case. Number three, we got a mixture of both here. Families who don't set up camp in their police stations don't get their cases to the top of the priority list. And this goes for any race or ancestry, ethnicity, culture, what have you. If a detective has five murder cases on his or her desk, they're going to be more likely to spend more time on the case with the father that calls every Tuesday morning, as opposed to the one with the friend that calls every few months. Also, as much as it is not fair, families with more power, whether financial or political, are going to get more attention to their cases. And those families are more often white. Now, that's as far as I can go when it comes to getting law enforcement to pick the case to begin with. I am a white lady. Yes, half half Mexican is true, but I'm going to admit I cannot relate to the kinds of struggles that minorities face, so I'm not even going to try. I have no solutions aside from what we all want. We all want these factors to not matter. Every murder victim deserves justice, and every doe deserves to be identified, no matter the color of their skin, how fat their family's wallet is, God they worship or don't worship, and so on. So we need to speak up. We need to keep the pressure on law enforcement to solve the cases that aren't in the media. They already want to solve those cases, but they need to know that the ones that aren't in the local papers, the ones that aren't covered, they're a priority too. Now, the second step is that once we get a case with DNA that's being extracted to be submitted to GEDmatch or Family Tree DNA or DNA Solves, there needs to be profiles for the unknown profile to match up to, right? You can't put something in a bag and try to, try to mix it up with something if, there's, if the bag is empty. After all, we have over 330 million people in this country. So how many bloodlines is that? 
my head hurts already. If this person's bloodline is not in the database that we're searching for, the case ain't gonna get solved. And if it's like barely there or barely, barely there, where we see those really low Morgan matches, we've seen cases like that with the distant relatives. They're hard cases and they are still worked and we do still get answers. And of course, we want them to be worked. We want them to be solved. And when we get them, even if they're the answers that we don't want, like in Erica's case, it it's great. But let's think about it. Do we want to identify that killer, that rapist, or that Joe in five months? Or do we want to do it in five hours? So we need to make a bigger pool. We said earlier that gen matches back up to about a quarter million opt-ins, but we know that is not enough. And we also know that those are mostly white profiles. Why aren't Blacks, Indigenous peoples, and other minorities evenly distributed in genealogy databases? I'll give you two reasons. One, they don't trust law enforcement. And like I said, I am not the person to try to solve that problem. Number two, they don't know about it. Consider Kern County Jane Doe from episode 20. Her killer's other victim, Ventura County Jane Doe, she is still a doe because her family is not in the pool. And it may very well be not that they don't trust law enforcement, but because they don't even know that it exists. Let's face it, the first step to getting something done is knowing that it can actually be done. That the process, the action, the whatever is actually in existence. They just need to get to it. And this, dear listener, is why I'm here. And it's why I've been here since January. And I'm going to be very honest here. Sure, I want to make money doing this. Who wouldn't? I mean, every episode takes anywhere from 8 to 10 hours to produce and costs money just to get it to you. I love seeing my listener stats grow. It feels amazing, especially the last few weeks. I am on cloud nine. Listeners that are never going to be convinced to opt in, please continue showing up for the story. I am still working on convincing my husband, after all, to get his DNA done. I do check the Apple app before I pick the case for each episode to see if it's been covered on other shows. And most of these cases really aren't covered. So please, if you're only here for those lesser known murders and somehow you find me lovable, then I love you too. And please stay with us. But the real reason this podcast exists is because each week there could be a new listener or maybe finally a veteran listener who says, I think I'm going to do it. I'm going to opt in. And then they do it. And I don't know if we've gotten that far yet. I hope so. Or I hope that you're coming and you're listening because you've already done that. And, and it's all, you're also just like me, just up there being opted in and not having anything hit up against you. Or maybe you've told your mom or your friend about forensic genealogy just in general as a whole as a crime-solving tool and not even about the podcast. Maybe they don't even listen to podcasts and they think that we're all weirdos over here. Maybe before your conversation, they didn't even know about this stuff, this whole crime solving with citizens DNA type of thing. And then maybe they thought about it and then they decided to opt in. I know I've recruited my own mother here and I'm an optimist, so I have to believe that I've convinced at least one other person at this point. And between you and me and my mom, law enforcement 
is that much closer to solving the next case. So that's what we can do. If you know of a minority case, a minority victim, a minority doe, whose case has been solved using forensic genealogy, and you think there's enough information to maybe create a 40-minute episode or 30 minutes, let me know, please. DM me, comment on this episode's post, send me a Gmail, the ties that find at gmail.com. Send me a message on my website, let me know, and I will do the work to find the information so I can have more of these types of episodes. So with that, we are going to call it good for today. Thank you so much for sticking with me, especially for this little after rant. And um, I hope you learned something new. Find me on the socials and I will see you next time. Bye. Bye.